it's our speaker. Um, so we're really delighted to welcome Professor Martin Eve as our first keynote speaker. Martin is a principal R&D developer at Crossref and Professor of Literature, Technology and Publishing at Birkbeck College, University of London. He's an esteemed figure in the sphere of open access and OA policy, and he's also the author of nine books, including Open Access and the Humanities, Context, Controversies and the Future. Martin has received numerous awards for his work, and in 2021, he was named by the Shaw Trust as one of the 100 most influential disabled people in the UK. Um, so we're really excited to be hosting Martin at this event. So um, over to you when you're ready, Martin. Thank you very much, Jenny, and thanks to everyone for coming today. Um, I said this to Jenny just a minute ago, but I'm going to have to have an apology um, that I'm not going to be able to stick around for the entirety of the conference because I have to go to a hospital appointment. So I hope I'll be let off for that. But I, I really hate it when keynotes just turn up and then zip off and don't listen to anybody else. So um, I just wanted to say that I do have an excuse this time for that. So apologies um, to other speakers and I'll catch up on the video. OK, so. I was given free reign over a title today for this broad ranging conference on open practices in 2023. And one of the things that struck me was the discourses of open access seem to circle around two different ax axes, one of which is to do with finance and the other of which is actually to do with the access to the scholarly material. And one of these lines takes us down a route that is trying to eradicate austerity trying to implement austerity in academic publishing and by that i mean that there is a wide swathe of anger at profiteering from the very big academic publishers and some people really want to eradicate that on the other hand there's a set of people who think that actually it might cost the same as it does now or it might cost more than it does now to do open access and that's their priority is to get the access in place what I wanted to do was to explore this and to eventually come to a position that is against austerity, not necessarily for profit, but against austerity in academic publishing, and to come to a philosophical position that appreciates the publishing labor that goes into this and appreciates that actually academics don't want to do everything in the publishing process themselves, but they could be part of a governance process that does that. I also want today to talk about some infrastructural deficits, things that we're missing at the moment in the open access space um, that would be useful for us to have, but that we don't at the moment have and that only commercial entities are providing. Without these vital parts of the technological in infrastructure and ecosystem, I don't think we have a complete open access um, environment at the moment. And I'll talk about why that is um, in relation to my work at Crossref very shortly. I'm going to close the talk with a set of kind of theses on open access publishing in 2023 that are the result of my 15 years or so working in this space. Um, you are free to disagree with them, to debate them, to query them, um, but I'll set out why I believe these things and how I've come to those decisions. So I want to start by talking about this infrastructural deficit and something that we don't know. So Crossref is a provider of DOIs. It's a DOI registrar, document object identifier. These are those long strings of text you see on the um, so how to cite this article page that usually look like doi.org slash and then a series of incomprehensible numbers. Um, this is what's called a persistent identifier. 
And the idea behind that is that if the um, publisher goes bankrupt or if they um, uh, take the content down, for example, then we at Crossref or a figure at the Digital Preservation Archive can repoint the um, URL, the DOI, so that it lands on the new content. And what this means is that that identifier should continue to work even if the publisher, say, went out of business. Now that's all well and good. That sounds like a great system. It's got digital preservation. It's a persistent identifier. These things are not going to die. Brilliant. But who's responsible for archiving this stuff? Well, in Crossref's case, we make it the member's responsibility, so the publisher who comes to us. And they say we say to them that they must make best efforts to contract with a third party, well-known, reputable archive to continue the persistence of their um, material to which they assign a DOI. We also give a metadata field. So when they register content with us, they can say this was in the Clocks archive or the Locks archive or Portico or whatever. But very few people actually use that. And I had a sneaking suspicion that there must be a quantity of material that is not well preserved. And I wanted to try to find out what proportion of scholarly objects assigned a DOI are adequately preserved in a recognized dark archive. So a dark archive is one where the content is stored, but it's not accessible until there's a trigger event, until the original content goes away, at which point the archive can make it available. I wanted to know how stable the preservation systems that underpin the persistence of persistent identifiers really are. I think if we're relying on this for the persistence of digital content and the ability to read digital scholarship two decades from now, we need to be sure that this stuff is actually working. I wanted to know which actors are behaving well on this theme, and this, this ties in with my overall theme about um, the uh, against austerity agenda, is it the case that small publishers without much revenue are doing well at this? Or is it the case that the mega publishers are the ones doing well? Is what Do we see any unexpected correlations between who is preserving content in a responsible fashion? I also want to think through who should be doing this. Is it libraries? Is it publishers? Is it both of them? The interesting thing is that in the print world, obviously it was the responsibility of libraries to preserve the physical items that they'd acquired. So a journal that's on a shelf or a book, for instance, these were physical artifacts and the preservation consisted of the physical curation and continued accessibility of those physical artifacts. In the digital world, when we're paying for licenses or accessing open access material on the publisher's site, this seems to shift the burden of who should be doing the preservation and it moves us away from a print-centric mindset. I think probably the most worrying of my questions, though, was I'm looking at this now in 2023 to work out what proportion of material is well-preserved and what isn't. Is it already too late? Can we go back and fix the material that is not well-preserved? What if it's not under an open license? We'll have no, no right to come in and just take something and preserve it. So my slide there seems to have hidden the text. I don't. If, um, apologies for this. I don't know what Blackboard is doing here, but um, if you uh, ho hover over the text, you can see slide. You can actually 
highlight the text and see what it's saying, um, which is to basically say that this is not the first study of material that's been preserved or, or otherwise. Um, so there's a great study by Mikhail Laxo from a few years ago called Open is Not Forever, a study of vanished open access journals that looked at open access journals and what had happened when they disappeared. And the basic finding there was that lots of these are not that well preserved and they are at risk of just vanishing from the scholarly record. And what that means is that we get this awkward situation where people are citing things that can no longer be accessed. Um, it's like in um, a group of classical studies scholars who told me a few years ago um, that they knew of an edition of the Iliad only by a citation of proxy. So other people had cited things from an edition of the Iliad that they didn't know about. Um, and that was the only proof they had that this thing had ever existed. It's like a distributed metadata assertion system with triangulation on the artifact, but there's nothing at the center. We also have a system called the Keeper's Registry, which is really important, but problematic. And this is where the infrastructural deficit that I was talking about comes in. So the Keeper's Registry is an amalgamation of the catalogues of several digital preservation archives. And it tries to bring together in a central place um, a record of what has been preserved in different parts of the ecosystem. So it might tell you that the LOX archive, for instance, has preserved volume 20, issue two of the journal Orbit. The problem with the Keeper's Registry, the problems with the Keeper's Registry are multiple though, sadly. The first is that this was originally a project of Adina and JISC, um, Adina at the University of Edinburgh and JISC, obviously um, the UK's Joint Infrastructure Services Council at the time. And the idea was that it would be transitioned off JISC and Adina into a sustainable environment where it could continue to operate and it could be expanded. And the chosen partner for that was the ISSN Foundation. Now that's all very well, but the ISSN Foundation operate this on the basis of their terms and conditions, which do not allow mass querying of the archive. So you can't do computated, computational automated queries of the, the Keeper's Registry to find out what is preserved at scale. You can do individual queries for your individual lookups. So a library acquiring a new title, for instance, could see whether or not this is preserved. But that's not quite the same as um, being able to see en masse what the environment looks like. Um, it's also the case that the Keeper's Registry um, doesn't have an API. So there's no programmatic interface that you could use to do that kind of um, broad scale work. And finally, the biggest problem with the Keeper's Registry for any kind of at scale work is that the um, metadata they hold operates at the container rather than the item level. So what I mean by that is that the Keeper's Registry will tell you that, as I say, volume 20, issue two of a journal has been preserved. They won't tell you that a specific DOI item has been preserved, except for the Internet Archive, whose FATCAT catalog does have this information at the item level. Why is that a problem? Well, in the contemporary publishing environment, um, when lots more open access publishing is happening and speed is important in many disciplines, we operate on a rolling publication basis where things are, are published when they're ready and they're just made uh, accessible at the time that they become available. That means that an issue is not necessarily ever finished. It could continue to expand. And saying that you preserve the entirety of an issue 
when it's still waiting content to come in could be quite unhelpful. It basically introduces an element of uncertainty into our calculations if we're doing this at scale. It also means that we can't say for certain that any item is ingested um, and we have to operate on a certain level of trust. And we have to also hope that the metadata at the item level is good enough for us to be able to translate to the container level to look up whether a singular item is preserved. So what we have at the moment is an infrastructural deficit. It's not good enough for us to find out what we want to know about the uh, digital preservation environment. So because I have loads of free time and like to do insane hobbies, I decided to build an item level preservation database that we could use to look at the scholarly record as a broader whole to find out what's preserved. And I'm just going to quickly tell you about some of these archives because they're, they're worth knowing about and they are quite interesting in their own right. So Cariniana is one of the interesting ones, which is um, an archive specifically devoted to the material of preservation, the preservation of material on the South American scene. Um, so lots of material from Cielo, for instance, ends up in Cariniana. Clocks is the controlled lots of copies keep stuff safe system, which is based at several academic libraries around the world. Um, these libraries all run what's called a locks box um, that preserves the material and conducts self-healing checks with the other archive boxes. So it reaches out to other archives in the system and says, I've got this file and its checksum is this. Does that match what you've got? If it doesn't, and multiple other sites are saying um, we've got a different checksum to you, then the system re-downloads the file from the other archives and repairs itself at the local copy. That's the locks and clocks system. Happy Trust, um, a US provider working with libraries. Uh, the Internet Archive and FatCat, which is their, their detailed record, which is item level, the only one of these that is. Um, Locks, the Lots of Copies Keep Stuff Safe archive, which is the broader version of Clocks. It's not just these controlled set of um, archives in specific libraries. PKP, a um, brilliant organization who create open journal systems, open conference systems, and open monograph press, have a private Locks network for digital preservation of material. They've recognized some of this infrastructural deficit I'm talking about and have moved to create a system that allows them, them their software users to preserve material. There's Portico, which is run by Ithaca, a very esteemed and long-standing digital preservation initiative. And then there's the Scholars Portal at Oakville in Canada, which is a private data source, but they gave me access to their um, catalog so that I could see what was preserved there. Now the Keepers Registry does also um, handle a set of other digital archives. However, they're very small and they have overlap with these archives here. So I opted not to spend my time building hundreds and hundreds of importers for each of these. But I guess that's another infrastructural deficit that I want to highlight here. Each of these archives uses a different format for how it presents its holdings data on what it has digitally preserved. So for me to do these one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight archives, I had to write an, a separate importer for each one of those digitally. I had to work out what their file format was, how it worked, and then write something that imported it. Yes, there are similarities, say, between locks and clocks, but Happy Trust is on a completely different system, Internet Archive again, Portico, etc. So the lack of standardization here presents another barrier 
to our knowledge of the ecosystem as a whole and what digital preservation looks like. I also needed some kind of great system. If I was going to work out who was doing well at this and who wasn't and what type of organization they were, I needed some kind of grading system for digital preservation. Now, there is no official scheme of this sort. There's no nothing the Digital Preservation Coalition will tell you about how we should score people and what they're doing for digital preservation. So I made up the EVE grading system for um, digital preservation, which is literally off the top of my head, but it tries to um, give a, a perspective across two different dimensions. So it tries to say how much of a publisher's content is digitally preserved and in how many archives. How many redundant times do they store what they're doing? Because the more times you deposit something somewhere, the greater the security, the greater the level of digital preservation. Because two archives, for instance, could fail and then you'd still have um, a copy available. So in my system, gold members were going to be those that had 75% of their content digitally preserved in three or more recognized archives. I considered that to be incredibly secure and that it would take an absolute worldwide catastrophe for those to um, all fail. Silver members for me were 50% of their content preserved in two or more archives and bronze were those that had 25% in one or more recognized archives. So you can recognize this is an exponentially difficult set of things to fulfill because 25% in one archive is a pretty low barrier 75% of your content, all of it in three or more archives is a much, much higher barrier. So it's very hard to get gold. It's very easy to get bronze. Um, unclassified, though, are those that don't meet any of the above criteria and could be said to be unpreserved. Jenny, I don't know what's happening with the slides, but there, there was background text here. I mean, we should have checked that beforehand, but um, I apologize again, Blackboard has, has hidden away the text here. Um, I think Jenny managed to paste it last time into the chat. So if we're able to do I'm that. I'm so sorry, that... Martin. Sometimes funny things happen with the slides when you um, upload them to Blackboard. Um, I'll, I'll paste that text in the, the text box for you. Thank you. Um, so what I, what I basically wanted to say from this slide is that Crossref has 145 million metadata records. It's quite a substantial data set. And it takes absolutely ages to process things in this data set if you're doing all 145 million of them every time. So while I could have done that, um, we actually have a sampling framework that will pull out seven and a half million DOIs for you at any time, which means that you can work with a representative sample from the Crossref database of articles without having to um, set your computer going for a week and come back later when it's when it's done its stuff so i used the sampling framework for this project seven and a half million or so dois um, the public data that i used is available in the samples.crossref.org s3 bucket on aws um, and the preservation findings that i made are available in the api uh, the labs api which is the experimental version of the crossref api that we run to play around with new new metadata forms So what did I find? Well, you know, there's film labels where they say contain scenes of mild peril. I think that's probably an accurate summary of what the digital preservation landscape looks like at the moment in the journal world. 
So you see that tiny slither of gold on the pie chart there, which is about 2% of Crossref members. That is the members that achieved 75% of their content preserved in three or more archives, my highest standard of, of activity. Silver, which is you know pretty good, it's two archives with 50% or more of content preserved, 1,797 Crossref members, but that's still only 8.5% of publishers in the scholarly space who are preserving stuff to that high standard. By far the largest bracket is the bronze category, 25% in one archive, 12,257 members or approximately 58% of Crossref members. Now that is both depressing and heartening. It's depressing because obviously it's not a very good standard of digital preservation. Um, it's a situation where this material is vulnerable. If the original publisher goes under and the archive goes under, we're in trouble. And that could happen. It could happen that they actually use some of the same storage solutions between the two if they're on the same cloud system, for instance. But it's also heartening because people in this bronze category recognize that they are supposed to be doing digital preservation and they've made the first step towards it. So I don't think we can be too harsh with this group because they know that what they're supposed to be doing and they are making some efforts towards it. They just haven't gone to the next step up that would give them more security yet. So that for me is the hope zone. That's the group of members we could reach out to and or they already know they're supposed to be doing this. Perhaps most worryingly though, approximately 33% or a third of all members hit my unclassified or no archival status um, situation. Now it could be that there are some problems in my data and that, that bracket could be smaller than that it is here. But this is a reasonable guess at what we've got having ingested all those archival um, records and then looked at what's been preserved. And to me, that constitutes a potential catastrophe looming. Imagine if a third of everything that was cited was suddenly inaccessible at some point in the future. Our scholarly record and the epistemic links that we have to the past would be blown apart in such a world. Okay, but here's the more important part for my talk today. What kinds of Crossref member are doing well at this and what kind are doing badly? So this chart goes from the members with the least revenue at Crossref. So those at the top that have virtually nothing, virtually no, no turnover, no profit down to the very bottom chart, which is those that have over $500 million per year revenue. So we're talking absolutely teeny bespoke publishers through to the mega giants of Elsevier and so on at the very bottom. Now there are some trends that you can see in this chart. Perhaps the most clear chart is the way that the silver bracket grows as we go down. So yes, okay, there's a bit of a setback in the, in the third bar there. But generally speaking, it gets it gets bigger and bigger as we get towards the more um, wealthy publishers. And we also see the eradication apart from the um, bar in the, of unpreserved in the bottom chart, which is probably just one publisher, by the way, um, because there are so few in that 500 million bracket. Um, but you can see that at the higher levels, there's far less material that is totally unpreserved. There is an interesting kind of inverse parabola on the gold front though, which is that some of the smaller publishers are doing a very, very good job at digital preservation. And some of them in fact, give us very, very good metadata. 
This is because they are working often on a volunteerist basis, but they really care about what they're doing and are invested in creating good metadata. They're invested in ensuring the digital preservation. They're invested in showing that they can do it right, even though they don't have a huge or any revenue stream. However, I can also say that the mega giants do this better on, in general than the not-for-profit, non-existent revenue, tiny publishers. Elsevier does a really good job of digital preservation. Now, obviously, I come from the scholar-led background, you know, the what can we do without having huge resources? So it kind of pains me to say that, but the results here are pretty clear and we've got to go with what the truth looks like on the ground. So at the moment, um, the mega publishers do a better job of digital preservation and are more secure than those small publishers. And we need to do something to fix that, is my feeling. You can also look at this by, by number of member deposits. So the amount of revenue a publisher has isn't the only um, way that we can classify the size of a publisher. And you see a very clear trend here of the eradication of the unpreserved category once we get to the really, really big publishers at the bottom who are publishing the most material. Now, this is slightly problematic because the bar at the top represents publishers who don't publish much material, and the one at the bottom represents those that publish a lot of material. I seem to be saying that not much material is unpreserved to a high extent, while lots of material is preserved to some extent. So it's not really a completely fair comparison of size, but it does give you this other trend where you can see again that the bronze bar just grows and grows and grows, the silver likewise, and in fact gold very clearly just goes up as you get down with slight dip at the end. Um, again, this is an indication that those with resources know what they're doing and are doing it. Those without are struggling at the moment to preserve digitally their material. So the last set of observations for this section on infrastructural deficit. So 4.3 million or so of the works we studied, 59% to 58% or so, were preserved at least once. So that's quite heartening. A good proportion of this is preserved somewhere and we could find that and tell you about it. Um, I think that's something to be celebrated. Um, it's definitely a lot better than some of the naysayers about digital security would tell you. However, there were 2 million or so works, about 27.64%, that seemed unpreserved and that I could not detect in a recognized archive. Now, it could be that these are in institutional repositories. It could be that there's a, um, the institution itself has some kind of archiving system and is preserving it. Um, it could be that we just couldn't match up the metadata. But it seems to me quite worrying, as I say, that you know, 27.6% when you look at it on a works basis, 33% when you look at it on a publisher basis, seem to be at, at peril of disappearing at the moment. We also had to exclude some works from the, from the sample, just a technical note here, because they were too recent. So if it's from the current year, it's not really very fair to say, is that in this archive yet? Because the archives take time to ingest content. Some of the things we looked at weren't journal articles, and we were only interested in looking at journal articles for this particular study. Or it had insufficient date metadata for us to match up from that uh, item level metadata to the container level metadata and then identify the source. So a challenging situation for infrastructural deficit position there. We just don't have 
a database that can 100% tell you with certainty that something has been preserved. So if you're interested in this stuff, um, and I appreciate not everybody is, so I'm going to stop talking about digital preservation shortly and move on to the next part of the talk. We do have a forthcoming peer-reviewed paper on this um, that's going to be in Journal of Librarianship and Scholarly Communication. Um, I'm going to work on a lay and easy read summary of the preservation situation. Um, it strikes me that lots of libraries are not digital preservation, librarians are not digital preservation specialists, and clearly lots of publishers are not digital preservation specialists given the um, state of the field at the moment. So I think we need some um, clear, clearly written non-jargonistic ways of expressing what's going on here if anything so that librarians on the ground can show it to their managers and and um, get them to understand the urgency of the digital preservation crisis at present crossref needs to do some direct member outreach um, while we are a neutral intermediary in some ways and a metadata repository where we can help to strengthen the scholarly record and to ensure the persistence of the pids that we assign I think that's an important role for us to take on and something that we need to work with. And to that note, I've got a project that's out for comment and query at the moment called Project Opsit. The idea behind that is that small open access members who deposit with us could give us a link to the paper in their deposit and we automatically lodge it with several digital preservation organisations. This would then mean that there's only one thing they have to do, which is to deposit with Crossref and they automatically achieve digital preservation and persistence of their PIDs. So um, if you Google for that, um, or look on the Crossref blog, you can find the full proposal for it. And I would really welcome anybody's thoughts who wanted to give me feedback, had questions or queries on it. And last but not least, the full charts and data set for this digital preservation experiment are available at the-vault.fly.dev. Okay, but what was missing? This was an incredibly painful exercise that took me probably about two months of programming labor, background research, um, building an infrastructure that could tell us whether items were digitally preserved. There's a huge amount of time and labor on my part that went into it that had to be funded because I have to eat. So somebody had to pay me to do it and Crossref did in the end. But it's a shame that Crossref had to be the ones to come forward to put that database together. There was a missing data infrastructure. We didn't have an open system for doing this and somebody should really take this on and build a permanent data infrastructure for monitoring digital preservation as a standard form that anybody can query openly. And that we are obviously lacking technical capacity as smaller publishers and members at Crossref as they don't know that they're supposed to be doing digital preservation or they're doing it in quite a weak form. So again, this means that Crossref needs additional resources to reach out from our technical support team to members to get them to get this digital preservation situation under control. So I'm gonna change tack slightly now. So I've pointed out what's missing in the infrastructure at the moment. I want now to talk a little bit about the theoretical backgrounds of open access before getting these two areas to dovetail together at the end. So as I said in the kind of introductory slide of my talk, I think if you look at the history of open access, there are two types of advocates and people can be a bit of both, to be honest, and it's more of a spectrum than um, absolute poles. 
but it's a useful way of thinking about what people have said about open access and why they want it. The first of these polls is to do with finance and money. Now, it's a well-known fact that the biggest academic publishers make profit in the region of 30 plus percent per year. This is more than big oil and big pharma. Um, it's caused a lot of outrage among the scholarly community. It's not well looked upon. It's a bad image, um, but it's nonetheless what we have. And some people want open access because they think that it will solve basically the ongoing serials crisis in library publishing and acquisition that um, has led to this situation of mega profiteers. So for some open access advocates, the fact that you don't have to pay for it is a solution to the library budgeting crisis, and it's a solution to getting rid of the profiteers at the top of the chain. Now, the challenges in that space are that obviously you do still have to pay for publishing labor. So new models have been invented like the APC or like consortial funding models, like the one that I started at the Open Library of Humanities. And you've, you've got to balance these, these two things. You can't just imagine, um, although some do, that all finance will disappear from the situation and that we can operate on a basis where no labor is required. On the other hand, a group of open access advocates have argued that the important thing is not fixing the financial situation with libraries and publishers. It's about just ensuring the open circulation of knowledge. So that could mean that we spend as much as we do at present on creating open access environments. It could mean we spend more than we do on present on creating open access environments. And in fact, that is seemingly what has ended up happening. Or perhaps we will spend a bit less, but the idea is that actually the finance is not the key thing to focus on here. What we're trying to focus on is the open accessibility of knowledge and what that does for education, for rights to knowledge worldwide, for reducing global inequality in access to knowledge worldwide, and so forth. But these two poles are not the same thing. That's what's important to, to note here. Um, and that different people in the open access movement may be asking for something that looks similar but if they're on the opposite ends of these poles, they might be doing it for very different reasons. And we might not fully understand the rationales and reasons for what they're doing. Now, I don't know if you know those kind of personality charts where they're divided into quadrants and you can say that somebody is or usually political charts, like they're right libertarian or right neoliberal or, or left socialist and so on. Because I think that we can do the same for a kind of political quadrant of open access advocacy. You seem to have right and left wing um, variants of these financial and access considerations. So, for instance, a right financial view would say that um, taxpayer funding for open access should have some kind of market pressure to keep that cost down and to ensure that the profiteers don't just make an absolute fortune off taxpayer funding. Although the corruption in some of our contemporary governments lead me to think that might be the outcome they do actually want, um, hard to say. A right-wing access perspective might say that the point of open access is to ensure that industry and third-party businesses can get access to the products of the university and that they are able to monetize those because they are taxpaying entities again. A left-wing financial perspective is one that is outraged at the financial situation of the profiteers taking away money from higher education environments in order to fund their, their profits and their shareholder dividends. Um, and they want open access in order to destroy those types of 
unethical in their view entities. And last but not least, there's a set of left access proponents who believe that the point of open access, as I said, is about equality, justice, social justice worldwide. And they are choosing to do this because they want to make work available to everybody and to make a better world. Um, that's where I like to think that I sit myself. Um, but you can probably identify different traits among what you think about open access and situate yourself somewhere on, on a spectrum like that. But it's a useful way of, of subdividing this kind of otherwise binary financial and access provision. Which leads me now to the closing part of my talk, which is thinking through some theses on academic publishing that come out of these two, two points. So just to summarize, the first of my points was that in the digital preservation space, we have an infrastructural deficit where we don't have all the open tools we want. And we have a set particularly of smaller publishers without revenue and without um, good solid support who are not very good at doing digital preservation whose content is at risk. My second point is that we have a set of different political agendas at work for open access um, from different political perspectives that have different views on what the financial system for open access should look like. And now I'm going to try and put these together with these theses. My first thesis is that trying to move all academic publishing to an entirely voluntary system free of all finance is a really bad idea that will not work. So I think the, the traditional response, if I say something like that, is with someone will say, well, not everyone wants that. That's not what we're saying. We're not saying it's going to be one where there isn't any finance in the system and there isn't any money. But I'd argue that some advocates do want that. Some advocates do want a system that apparently just runs itself technologically. So you know, we can make PDFs and we can put them online or we can create LaTeX documents and put them up. And it doesn't require anybody to do any work at a publisher for that to happen. Um, I'm going to argue that that is itself not true and it's important that we counter that. But it strikes me that the people who do this are often very technologically savvy, very technologically literate academics. Um, they're the ones who can do this stuff. But if they went and talked to my colleagues in the history department or in the English literature department, or even some of my colleagues in the computer science department, they're not actually as technically literate as most people imagine. They're not interested in the processes of publishing. They might be interested in its governance, but not necessarily in doing the stuff itself. They have incredibly stretched workloads as it is at the moment as academics, and they don't want to spend their time working to do what they consider non-academic activity. I mean, for me, publishing and dissemination are part of the academic life cycle, but it's a professionalized skill set. I mean, how many people know what JATS, the Journal Article Tag Suite, which is an XML format for publishing, actually is? How many of these academics who are supposedly going to take over a voluntary system of open access publishing know what locks and clocks and portico, those archives I stood, I stood up earlier, are going to are? They don't know anything about these things. And so what we'd actually have is a very low quality publishing system with no professional support and we're putting additional demands on academic time. So it is my view that academic publishing should remain a professionalized activity that is uh, remunerated. It doesn't have to be remunerated at vast levels of profit. We can operate for-profit organizations and the one that I founded, notably the Open Library of Humanities, does just that. 
Um, but I don't agree with the financial perspective of eradicating all finance and all payment from contemporary academic publishing. No technological system runs itself, and we need to steer clear of blockchain. So about once a year, someone comes to Crossref with a suggestion for how we can use object hashes or we can use the blockchain to create a distributed system of metadata storage and a, and a distributed DOI resolver. And then we won't need this organization that sits in the middle. They seem to think it's quaint that in 2023, humans have to come along and deposit metadata with us. But it's simply not true that technological systems can run themselves and that they will never require an organization behind them to run. So even systems like blockchains, if you look at their history, there's a brilliant um, Twitter feed called Web3 is going just great that details the number of catastrophes in the blockchain space where people have switched their systems onto it and then it's gone wrong. You can look at the number of cryptocurrencies that have moved to having um, to create what are called hard forks where a set proportion of the governance of, of the chain argues that they need to start again. And so they fork, it's called the chain, and then two different chains exist, the original and the new one. But if you can do that, that's not a system running itself. That's a system where there's been technological intervention. It's a system where there's been governance decision made, it's a system where there have been voting in, enshrined. Um, it's simply the, not the case that we can just move to a system where academics can just upload what they want and it will be fine. A system like Zenodo, for instance, which is a massive central repository for scholarly communications based at CERN, has a team behind it who have to work to fix bugs, to repair the system when it doesn't work, to give technical support to users who can't work out what they're supposed to be doing. If you take these things away, you disempower a certain section of, of the audience. Also, it tends to be the more vulnerable members who, who need more support and who don't get it in that situation. So for instance, what, what are you doing to ensure that your systems that you develop um, have a uh, accessible interface for people who can't see? Um, what about those who can't hear and you've got some system that uses audio, for instance? Um, these disability requirements are quite technical, require people to think about them, and they constantly change. It's not something that you can just set up. But the people who optimistically talk in utopian terms about how we can move away from having organizations running systems to systems that are autonomous and maintain themselves, just are not thinking of those most vulnerable members of our society. Persistence, preservation, and infrastructure require persistent preserved, ongoing, that is, investment. So Crossref is a signature of the POSI Declaration, which is the Principles on Open Scholarly Infrastructure. And this means that we state several principles about what we do. And one of those is that grant funding should, or time-limited funding should only be used for time-limited activities. It's not an acceptable business practice to have a pyramid scheme where you rely on continual grants to ensure the ongoing um, sustainability of what you're doing in a scholarly communications infrastructure. However, that doesn't mean that we don't need investment. We need initial investment in this space, and there isn't enough, say, to build that digital preservation database that I was just talking about. And we need ongoing investment 
from libraries to support that in the longer term. And a transition from experimental project under a funder to um, infrastructure supported collaboratively by the libraries that benefit from that is a way that we can shift this pr previously print-centric thinking into the digital space for digital preservation. Scholar-led or not-for-profit open initiatives can do infrastructure well, but not as an academic side hobby. I spent many years doing an academic job while running um, an academic publishing organisation, and I ended up having a stroke and being extremely unwell. Um, I don't recommend it. Um, we need, as I've said, to continue the professionalised side of academic publishing as we move into the open era. We can eradicate profiteering while keeping not-for-profit structures, and we can set up academic governance. That's what I think would be most important, is ensuring that academic editorial boards, ensuring that they know what the processes are behind their production, so that we don't end up with a situation where post-colonial studies journals are being typeset on the Indian subcontinent at rates below the minimum wage. Um, we can get academics involved in the ethics, the governance and oversight of academic publishing without them having to uh, become academic publishers fully themselves. And that's where I'm going to leave it in my kind of theses against austerity and thinking about this. I'm sure that was contentious for some people and that there, there'll be some questions and comments. Uh, but thank you very much for listening. I hope that uh, at least some of it was interesting. Um, and thanks again to the organisers for putting together such a great conference today. Thank you so much, Martin. That was very thought provoking. Um, we have time for a question or two. We're, 